0: And welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is July 7th, 2017. My name is Erica and joining us in our virtual studio today is Doug and Tiffany. Hello. Hello. Welcome. So today our topic is suicide and euthanasia, a valid choice or the easy way out. According to the World Health Organization, a person commits suicide every 40 seconds, and it is the leading cause of death in 15 to 29-year-olds. There is a high rate of suicide among veterans and active service members, the mentally ill. And whether they're severely depressed or psychotic, what is the risk factor? Suicide and suicide attempts are considered criminal acts in many countries around the world, and it continues to be stigmatized and spoken about in hushed tones. To many, suicide goes against a human being's innate sense of self-preservation, while others claim it is the ultimate act of freedom and taking control of one's own fate, as in assisted suicide or mercy killings. On this episode of the Health and Wellness Show... We'll discuss the factors that could lead a person to take his or her own life. Suicidal clusters, live stream suicides, and whether for some people experiencing extreme emotional or physical pain can cause suicide to be a valid choice. So welcome all to the show. And we do realize this is a very intense topic. Yes. If anyone would like to call in, offer their perspective, or join us in the chat, please do. Mm-hmm. We're not going to offer any sort of su- solutions. Yeah. We're just going to have a discussion on this topic.
1: Yeah. yeah it's kind of a, a touchy subject because, mm-hmm. like in the description, it's still kind of a, a taboo. And a lot of countries have a suicide as a criminal act. Which is kind of strange, because if someone kills themselves, it's not like you can, you know, take them to court Prosecute them. <laughs> yeah. But even uh, in some countries, a lot of Middle Eastern, African countries in particular, um, even attempting suicide, you can go to prison after that, which this doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I don't know. uh Does the state consider it a loss of resources if someone Hmm. commits suicide? What's the state's stake in whether someone lives or dies? Because at the same time, you have, you know, uh, where they put people to death for certain crimes. So it's not as if they really care about someone's well-being. So I never really understood how that could be considered a criminal act.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of... um... Kind of a crazy thing, actually. Like, my own personal perspective on it is if, if somebody really wants to commit suicide, you know, that's kind of their right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not that I'm pro-suicide or anything, and I think, obviously, you know, they should be try, try, you know, get some counseling and try and go through, through different steps to be able to uh, kind of come uh, to some sort of understanding of it, you know, whether they need mm-hmm. some kind of medical attention or something. But, you know, at the end of the day making it against the law, I don't think that's really going to dissuade anybody from doing it if they're really in a place, you know, if if you come to a place where suicide seems like a viable option, it's not like, you know, well, it's illegal. Is that really going to stop you? Probably not.
1: I'm sure most people don't even know a lot of times that it is illegal. Mm. But yeah, that more than likely would not make a difference at all. Well, it's interesting. Uh,
0: We started with the World Health Organization and they had some statistics and they were saying that, um, you know, that every 40 seconds suicide kills more people than uh, conflicts and wars and natural catastrophes. Mm -hmm. And that over the 1.5 million deaths that happen every year around the world, 800,000 of those are suicides. Mm -hmm. And uh, 25% of that is actually found in rich countries where men are twice as likely as women to commit suicide and the common methods are hanging gunshot wounds and poisoning by insecticides. Mm -hmm. And and when I was reading about that, it made me think of the farmers in India that have been committing suicide because of the green revolution. And we won't get into that whole discussion here, but you know, people do it for varying reasons. And I think like in India, it's all about debt mm-hmm. and passing on this debt to your children. And of course, the family is going to be negatively affected if the parent kills themselves. But maybe they look at it as a way out mm-hmm. so that their family doesn't pay a deeper price.
1: Well, there are some rare cases of suicide where it's more like a social statement of protest like people who self-immolate during protests. Mm in different parts of the world, or they go on a hunger strike or do something in order to draw attention to some sort of cause, like they make a martyr of themselves.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, there was one uh, guy I was reading about who was a a DJ in Italy who um, had a really serious car accident and ended up a paraplegic. And in Italy, um, assisted suicide is illegal. It's not allowed. Although they've apparently been considering it for a long time, so he was kind of using his situation as a, a, a platform to kind of get the issue out there and try and, you know, get um, get the the resolution passed or whatever it was, you know, get get um, assisted suicide be to be legal in Italy. Um, but you know, the parliament was just kind of dragging their feet on it and everything. So he ended up going to Switzerland to do it, and. The whole time he was kind of using it as a platform to, um, you know, try and make this kind of change happen in his country. Um, but you know, Italy being a historically Catholic um, country, I think that there was a lot of resistance to it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I mean, you know, drawing drawing attention to a, a cause of some kind. Well, this guy was dr- actually drawing attention to the idea of assisted suicide, mm-hmm. his death was kind of, uh, you know a way of kind of bringing that out.
0: Well, it's interesting he went to Switzerland, too, because they were the first country to legalize assisted suicide back in 1942. Mm. And apparently the law was reinterpreted um, to allow the existence of organizations to pr- provide aid to the dying, and it's led to an industry called suicide tourism. hmm so I don't know if we want to get into me. the whole euthanasia thing just yet.
1: Yeah, we can do that. But I don't know, 800,000 people a year, if that figure is correct, it probably is more than that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. But That is a lot of pain and suffering that people are going through where they see suicide is really the only way out. Yeah. And I don't know. It's hard to... Put yourself in someone else's shoes when they're in such misery that that they consider that their only option at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think it's difficult for, you know, people who aren't, haven't necessarily been in kind of a, a suicidal state or, you know, been on the verge or something like that where they're actually seriously considering it to, to really understand that mindset. Because, um, like, I personally, you know, other than going through some, you know, terrible mood swings when I was a teenager, I've I never actually seriously considered um, suicide. Like, it, you know, things got really bad and I maybe had these kind of fantasies of something, oh, they'll be sorry if I was gone or something like that. But it, mm-hmm. I, it was never anything where I actually was like, you know, maybe I could do this. Like, yeah. it's never something that actually crossed my mind. So, it, it you know, it's difficult for, for me to actually kind of put myself in somebody else's shoes where they could be in that state. You know, and 800,000 people, like, that's that's a lot of people. So it, it really is, it's kind of
1: mind-boggling. So is it, what is it? I mean, people who are mentally ill, severely depressed, can be thinking of suicide uh, much of the time. Now, I've had... That moody period like you said In my teenage years But I never seriously Considered the actual act Of Mm. doing it And what that would be like It was more like I was so Disconnected from other people And lonely Mm. That I Just wanted the pain to go away Mm
0: -hmm. Mm.
1: And I think That's what a lot of people Who actually do commit suicide or have suicide suicidal thoughts think. Like I was reading on some website where the psychologist was saying that if there were a third option, like if people could be in a place that was between life and death, where they don't actually have to be dead, but that they could find just some resting place where they could be where the pain will be gone, but they're not necessarily dead, then they would choose that option. But that option doesn't really exist because life goes on, Mm -hmm. and you still have to live through your life every day.
2: But I wonder if that's why opioid addiction might be
0: one of the
2: possible reasons for that. You know, it's just kind of a numbing. Mm
0: -hmm. And what does it say about the world that we live in that that it's so common, and yet it's not this huge focus like Mm -hmm. the war on terror? You know,
1: well, there is this epidemic of loneliness. Like articles come out about that all the time. Mm-hmm. How people are so disconnected from each other, and with you know social media, it gives the illusion of connection with other people, but it's not a real deep, like day-to-day in-person connection with other people. And so we'll probably be seeing more suicides or attempted suicides. And then when you factor in like the quickening of the cosmos and how things get before civilizations end, you Mm -hmm. might be seeing more suicides as well.
0: Well, and there's that whole myth, and maybe we should talk a little bit about that, about why people do it and how it's selfish or spontaneous you know, all these different ideas, especially when it happens to a loved one or with children or teens. Mm-hmm. You know, so maybe you want to speak a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Well, is it impulsive? I don't know if you could say one way or the other that all suicides are not impulsive or mm. that they are impulsive. Mm. I think that people who are really seriously depressed, and are constantly having suicidal thoughts, and they actually carry out the suicidal act and succeed, I mean, there's a lot of planning that has to go into that. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of test the waters. You have to have a plan, like, what you're going to do. And sometimes that process could take years. Hmm.
2: Yeah, or just making the decision probably takes a long time, too. I, I, I think that the impulsivity thing is probably just from the perspective of other people. Yeah. Like, you know, some people might be severely depressed or, you know, considering suicide, but they're just very good at hiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it seems to come out of the blue, like come out of nowhere if somebody commits suicide. So there's this idea that it's, all, it's a, it was a very impulsive act. I mean, some situations when there's an obvious cause, like, you know, some guy gets dumped by his girlfriend and commits suicide. Okay. Or, you know, there's a stock market crash and the, Bankers start throwing themselves out windows. Though those seem like you could maybe justify the the label of impulsivity, but um, I think in other situations when it just kind of comes out of the blue and people weren't expecting it and they don't know why, um, they, they can often get like just labeled as impulsivity just because nobody knew.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's that one news newswoman back in 1974, I think. And she actually shot herself on the air. She didn't die right then and there. I think she died like 14 hours later. But she was giving out hints and clues before that. And she was uh, made a joke to one of her coworkers about shooting herself on air. She brought a bag in, the bag that she usually carries and puts under the desk, and it had a gun in it. But she was dropping clues and hints before yeah. it actually happened on the air. And she actually announced, like, in keeping with
0: Channel 40's policy of bringing you the latest blood and guts and living color, you're going to see another first, an attempted suicide. She pulled out a gun and shot herself behind the ear. But then, when they started to look into it, you know, they had, for years, she had told her family that she felt depressed and suicidal. Four years before her death, she had attempted suicide by overdose and frequently discussed the in- incident weeks before she died. The news station granted her a uh, request to cover a story on suicide. And during the interview, she even asked a police officer for details on self-inflicted gunshot wounds.
2: Mm-hmm. So, were there, so some, she, there were some
1: signs.
0: Yeah, there was some signs, but it's again, like.
1: You have to be paying attention. Yeah. Or you're, yeah. you'll miss the signs. But some people. They probably feel so disconnected from others, like they cannot make that connection to actually say what's going on with them internally with another person. Mm. So it's not always apparent.
2: Yeah, and I think that that a number of articles actually discuss that in regards to the higher statistics for men than for women, mm-hmm. as far as suicide goes, particularly in um, first world countries. I think um, well, what they were saying is that it has to do with the fact that men don't really openly talk about their feelings in general. So it's not like, you know, going out for beers with the, with your buddies and you kind of just drop, well, yeah, by the way, I've been feeling suicidal lately. It doesn't, uh, it's just kind of not part of the culture. Like, so yeah, I, I can see that there is, there is certainly a hesitation to talk about it. And I think that that might apply to men more than women. Hopefully I'm not, you know, being biased here.
0: No, there there was an article or, or the Norwegian Institute of Public Health did a research project in 2014 and it was about suicide in apparently well-functioning young men and they found that depression and other mental illness is actually not a risk factor in suicide but it was more about vulnerability and feeling rejected not having succeeded in achieving their goals shame and trapped in anger, unbearable thoughts, you know, again, so this idea of suffering because you haven't achieved what you thought you need to achieve in life.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, perfectionism comes into it too. And I think that was mentioned in one of the articles that we read like people mm-hmm. who have very, very high standards for themselves. And they have a lot of shame if they don't meet certain goals that they set for themselves. They can be very uh, highly self-critical. Um, so if they don't, you know, match up to their own standards, they would be at higher risk for suicide mm-hmm. than other people.
2: Hmm. Well,
1: getting but back one, to the
2: myths. Oh, sorry.
1: Now, one thing that I thought that could make suicide more impulsive than was typically thought like when you think of someone who just plans it out over a period of years uh, Like a uh, they're on drugs or something
3: mm.
1: And not just illegal drugs But, yeah. you know, you have the, the people who overdose Or the people who are so out of their mind on drugs And they have this thought of suicide and they just carry through with it Yeah Um antidepressants Mm -hmm. actually have a warning on them that they can increase thoughts of suicide. And a lot of people who actually do commit suicide are on antidepressants at the time. Mm. So they're supposed to be seen as a solution, something that's going to help them out of their depression. And actually, they push the depression deeper.
2: Yeah. Well, there was the recent headline grabber about Chris Cornell, the lead singer of um, Soundgarden who uh, committed suicide. And that seemed very impulsive and out of the blue. And um, he apparently was on... Was it of van. Yeah. van at the time. And had said to his wife that evening that he thought he maybe t- had taken one too many. And um, yeah, it's like the, they had a, f- a phone conversation before the show and he was his normal self and they were talking about their family vacation that they're going to take and talking about the family and all that kind of stuff. And then after the show he had taken these drugs and apparently she said that she was talking to him on the phone and he was slurring his words and he didn't seem like himself. And then next thing you know, suicide. So it's very, very curious case. And certainly not the, the only one. There's lots of cases of, uh, of these um, people on these um, antidepressant drugs, you know, suddenly committing suicide. Mm
0: -hmm. Another aspect of that. And, I don't want to go too deep into it, is the military in the yeah. U.S. Mm. So they're finding now that more soldiers are committing suicide than are dying in the wars in the Middle East. <clears throat> and some of the statistics are there's over 8,000 suicides each year by U.S. soldiers and veterans, and that's over 22 a day. They're attributing over 33% of those to medication side effects. Mm-hmm. Mm. <clears throat> Um, Over 500% of soldiers are actually abusing prescription drugs and illegal drugs. So those are, you know, off pad use. And, um, you know, again, what does that say about their quality of life? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I was reading somewhere that even soldiers who had never been on a tour of duty or have seen the quote unquote theater of war were taking their lives. Oh, really? Yes.
2: That's crazy because I, I had always assumed it was kind of like a post-traumatic stress type situation where, you know, these soldiers are kind of forced to witness these horrific acts of war. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as a result, they just can't live with it and, and kind of um, medicate themselves to the point where suddenly these side effects start showing up or they just can't take the, the pain of this post-traumatic stress type thing, but if they if it includes soldiers who weren't even on the battlefield, then that's very curious.
1: Yeah, but I don't think you necessarily have to be on the battlefield to get PTSD. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a whole military culture that can be difficult for someone, especially if they're more sensitive mm-hmm. or, you know, they went through hazing or whatever it is the military recruits do to each other. I don't mm-hmm. think you necessarily have to be in combat. I mean, combat is pretty bad, you know, killing innocent people. Maybe a certain number of those soldiers who realize what they're really doing in the military just can't take it anymore. Well, and that's all kind of basic training is to
0: break your spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was interesting is that they were talking about the suicide rate of uh, active duty soldiers during the Civil War, which was one of the bloodiest wars in American history. So there was only 9 to 15 per 100,000 soldiers that committed suicide, while the suicide rate of active duty U.S. soldiers in the Middle East is 23 per 100,000. So they were speculating that the casualty rates were far higher in the Civil War, meaning the Civil War was much more psychologically traumatic, but you didn't see the suicide rate that you see
1: now.
2: Interesting.
1: Interesting. Yeah. What could be the reason for that?
0: I think the psychiatric drugs have a lot to do with it. I mean, we have covered psychiatric drugs in the past and, you know, especially something like Prozac where they warn people, oh, by the way, there's a suicidality risk Mm -hmm. to taking this drug. Yeah.
2: Yeah which is so insane when you think about it. I mean, I know we've done shows on this in the past, but just the fact that a drug that's supposed to be helping you with your depression or your anxiety or your, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever the case may be, has a possible side effect of suicidal suicide ideation. Like that just it, that just blows my mind. Like I mean, talk about like giving the wrong drug.
1: Yeah. I don't think there is any right drug or major wow. depression anyway. I mean, it can't be cured yeah. with a pill. Yeah,
2: uh, I think you're right.
1: Yeah. But I mean, in
0: changing topics just a little bit here, but the drugging of children as well. Hmm. I mean, there is hmm. a documentary that came out years ago called Generation RX, and it was basically all about the psychiatric drugging of children and all these children, 8-, nine, ten year olds who had killed themselves on these drugs and nobody was looking into it. And it's really a very hard film to watch, but you realize like, I mean, what would drive an eight-year-old to hang themselves with a garden hose? I mean, that just Jeez.
1: that boggles the mind.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And my former career as a school-based therapist, I had one nine-year-old that ended up in the psych hospital for attempting to kill himself. And it was Mm. just so sad. I'm like, what could be going on? I mean, his home life wasn't the best. And I'm not 100% sure if he was on medication or not. But Mm -hmm. it was just so tragic. Like, what kind of world is this that we're living in that a nine-year-old sees suicide as an option? Yeah. What kind of family life was that for him? But... Yeah, I've never known anyone personally that's committed suicide. No one in my family, at least not during my lifetime, has committed suicide. But I've worked with people who were suicidal. And there are certain things that you're supposed to look out for. Like my line of work, we always had to ask people if they were suicidal and if they had a plan. What if they did You know have suicidal thoughts What was it that stopped them from doing it hmm. And a lot of people Would say you know if they had kids Or if they had family or if they were Religious they were scared that if they Committed suicide they would go to hell
3: hmm.
1: uh, Things like that but we do Have a clip that we can play um, How to tell if somebody is suicidal So we can go ahead And play that
4: Suicide. The act of taking your own life. A horrific act, but sadly a common occurrence. Every 40 seconds someone dies from suicide. That's 1 million people per year. Maybe you've never dealt with suicide directly, maybe someone you know has attempted or committed suicide. Perhaps you have attempted suicide. Whatever your experience with suicide is, it's very important to understand the signs of suicidal behavior. But please keep in mind that not every suicidal person will show these signs. In addition, seeing a single sign does not mean that the person is suicidal. The point of this video is for you to understand Understand these signs and work out whether the person needs a friend or professional help. Sign number one, suicidal talk. What do you think about suicide? Have you ever thought about killing yourself? How would you kill yourself? What do you think is the best way to commit suicide? Questions or phrases like this may suggest that a person is considering it. They talk about it because they want your opinion. In a way, they are asking for advice on committing suicide while not openly admitting to it. This may also be a way they are screaming for help. Sign number two, Giving away prized possessions. It's an odd occurrence when someone gives away expensive items or items they may need. In their mind, where they're going, they don't need material things. Giving away material possessions to loved ones may be a way they think they are helping close friends and family after their death. Sign number three, changes to their will. There are usually a number of triggering events that cause someone to write their will. These events include marriage, having kids, older age, starting a business, or a close loved one dying. If a person seems to want to write a will out of the blue, try asking them why they have decided to write one. Sign number four, obtaining a weapon. Of course, the mere act of obtaining a weapon doesn't mean someone is suicidal, but paired with the previous signs mentioned should serve as a warning, especially if they don't show any signs of taking up things like shooting as a sport, shooting as a hobby, or gun collecting. Sign number five, strange sleeping patterns. Though strange sleeping patterns are often seen in suicidal people, it is is isn't the sleeping disorder that causes this. It is actually stress or restless thoughts from personal problems that cause a person to have trouble sleeping at night. Because of that, the inability to sleep that lasts a long period of time may be a clue that someone is suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts. Sign number six, low energy. Low energy levels are often seen in people with depression, which is sometimes coupled to suicidal thoughts. These low energy levels happen as a result of lack of sleep and little motivation to do activities that will actually help them feel better. Sign number seven, abusing drugs or alcohol. A study by Bruce Alexander examined the theory of drug addiction on rats. Previous studies have concluded rats to be highly motivated for addictive drugs despite the obvious risks like being electrocuted or deprivation of food. Alexander challenged that notion by conducting a study of his own. He would put the rats in cages where they were free to do activities and interact with other rats. In past studies, the rats were in cages alone often often with nothing to do but the addictive drug. In Alexander's study, he found the rats to rarely take the drug. The same implications can be made for humans. When humans don't feel connected to anyone, they may turn to drugs and alcohol as a form of escape. Another reason may be because they think the drug will give them enough willpower to commit suicide. Sign number eight, low motivation for social life. People who want to commit suicide often drop out of their social lives. Depressed and suicidal people often do not feel connected to others around them. As a result, they may end up dropping existing friends or family because they don't feel good enough for them. They may also see socializing as a distant, unimportant thing. Sign number nine, not participating in activities they love. Seen in depression as well, suicidal people find no interest in activities they love anymore. Nothing seems to matter and their interest is diminished. Sign number 10, self-harm. Self-harm is one of the biggest signs that someone might be suicidal. Examples of this include cutting, burning, and poisoning one's In a sense, it's a way that suicidal people test the waters to see if they actually have what it takes to commit suicide. Former self-harmers often say that the physical pain helps them escape the emotional one. Sign number 10, risky behavior. Studies have shown that suicidal people tend to take more risks. Look out for signs such as driving recklessly or picking fights. Sign number 11, emotional outbursts. Look for unexplained emotional reactions to certain things people have said in their presence. It might make no sense to you why these words are triggering such an emotional response, but it could be words that remind them of a traumatic event in their life. Sign number 12, body language. This is a very general sign, but paired with the previous signs could be a good clue of depression and suicidal thoughts. Look for body language such as slumped shoulders, staring at the floor, and unwillingness to make eye contact. Sign number 13, past suicide attempts. The number one and most obvious sign that someone might be suicidal is if they have a history of attempting it in the past. This is called suicidal tendencies. One thing people don't understand about depression is that it's not easily cured by a pill. A sudden stop of medication may trigger a worst wave of depression that will lead to another suicide attempt. Sign number 14, happiness and calmness. This sign is hard to spot because you may be under the impression that the person is becoming better. A misconception about depression is that the lowest point, you know, when they're really sad and in bed in one's life, is what causes this person to commit suicide. What actually happens at this point is that the person is unwilling to do anything. They are at such a low point, they are unwilling to eat, watch TV, or partake in their favorite activities. Their days are spent mostly in bed. Committing suicide actually takes energy and planning, so this happens just above the lowest point when they have the energy to think clearly and execute it. Just before suicide family members or close friends who were in contact with the victim have even reported seeing them happy and calm this is because the suicidal person has finalized their plan and things they can finally escape the world was <laughs> <laughs> how that ended
1: <laughs> yeah i don't think i've ever seen all of those signs in people Hmm. but I've definitely seen signs of severe depression, the body language that goes along with it, poor sleep, uh, talking about not necessarily suicide in itself, but not wanting to be here. Uh, Just a lot of despair and hopelessness and no plans for the future. And I think that in a lot of cases, like... You don't necessarily have to be suffering from severe depression or be psychotic or maybe there's voices that are telling you to kill yourself. But when you get to the point where you decide that death is the only way out, I don't think that that state of being in emotional turmoil is a normal state for human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think that if somebody is in that state, it's very hard for them to see any other way out it's very hard for them to see you know or to recognize that this too shall pass like mm. everything comes in cycles you have periods where you're happier and periods where you're sad but i think when someone is in that state they cannot see past it mm. so you don't necessarily have to be crazy but i think in certain ways you are out of your mind mm-hmm. when you Decide to commit suicide.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's that's part part of the whole suicide thing that is is that people really aren't thinking straight for the most part. I mean, I guess I can't generalize entirely, <clears throat> but um, yeah, just the the inability to see um, outside of your own bubble um, of you know depression. It kind of uh, it, it, it kind of it almost goes without saying that you know a person is in that kind of state if they are actually willing to go and take their own life. Because if you did have kind of a wider perspective, then you would see, you know, this too shall pass or, um, you know, there are other options. You know, I, I always thought that it, I would like, you know, pack up and run and just mm-hmm. try and start a new life somewhere or something like that before I would commit suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than just stay in the same situation that's causing whatever issues mm-hmm. I'm having, I would see myself... I mean, maybe this says more about me than anything else, but that like, I I think I would probably, you know, bolt before I would like kill myself.
1: Yeah, i thought about that too. And Mm -hmm. then there's that thought like, wherever you go, there you are. I mean, what are you running away from? You know, you're still going to have to deal with yourself and whatever it is that got you into this situation. But if you're in that frame of mind where you're under such turmoil and despair, you can't really see that. Mm -hmm. At the time you can't think Oh you know my home life Is just wrecked you know what Can I do about it you don't have the Presence of mind to actually make a plan To make things better for yourself and that's Where I think reaching out to other People would be The best thing that you can do in that situation Yeah But there are the Go ahead
2: I was just going to say even if there is no, No one kind of in your immediate Surroundings who You could talk to, I mean, they do have a lot of different, you know, helplines and uh, Mm -hmm. um, suicide prevention, um, you know, phone numbers you can call where you can just talk to somebody. And in some situations, talking to a stranger might actually be better, kind of give you a better perspective on the situation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, do you guys think it's this selfish thing that it's played out to be? Or is that a myth that comes along with the whole thing, like that, that it's spontaneous? Mm-hmm. Or?
1: Well, some would argue that if you're in such pain, whether it's emotional or physical pain, that checking out at that moment is probably an act of self-love mm-hmm. because you're taking care of yourself. It seems kind of warped. But then on the other hand, there's the people that you left behind. You know, yeah. they might have to deal with the aftermath. Like, what if your mother or your child discovered your dead body? Like, would they ever, in their entire lives, get over that? Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of pain to inflict on somebody. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I, I mean, I guess that, that's where the kind of the selfishness thing kind of comes from. Is that mm. normally, like we were saying, you know, you're, you're in your own bubble so much that you're not even really thinking about the implications necessarily, or certainly mm-hmm. not thinking about all the implications. You know, in some situations, people commit suicide, they actually think, you know, this is actually a good solution. This is better. This will be better for everybody. Yeah. But how um, I'll no longer be a burden. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I, I think in reality, it's like it, it's extremely traumatizing for the the family, the friends.
1: Mm-hmm. And people well, usually are,
2: aren't able to do that.
1: There are pro-choicers and pro-lifers in the whole suicide debate, too. Not just abortion, but... Hmm. Pro-choicers say that people's lives are their own. Their life belongs to nobody but themselves. And if they decide to commit suicide, who is anyone to stop them? Hmm. They say that if it is justified due to unrelenting pain, Hmm. um, if it's chronic or if it's disabling pain, their right to want to die should be respected. And then there's the pro-lifers that say that your life belongs to God and only God can say when it's time for you to leave.
2: Hmm. Well, I don't agree with that second one so much, but I don't
1: know. You know,
2: coming into the show, I kind of would agree with that first statement that, you know, everyone has the right to, you know, to die, to end their life when they when they feel it's time for them to end their life. And I still do feel that way in situations where somebody is in chronic pain and they, they can't be helped and there's mm-hmm. a lot of suffering going on. Um, but I think, you know, I, I reading up for this show, there were some situations where it was kind of like older people who kind of felt like their life was done, so they wanted to commit yeah. suicide. One woman who um, didn't want to see her um, beauty fade. Um, mm-hmm. Another woman who was disturbed by the kind of where technology was taking us and how everybody's turning into robots because they're always on their cell phones and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not that that's not a legitimate complaint, but, um, I kind of think those sorts of situations, you know, does, I I don't know, but does, does that person kind of have the right to just kind of like off themselves because, you know, they're bored or they're like, no, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to, I'm going to check out. I mean, maybe they do, I don't know. It's it's uh it's kind of hard for me to say. I think I think it's a very kind of gray area.
1: Yeah, I don't know either. I believe very strongly in people's right to self determination. hmm But at the same time, I still, if somebody is hurt, I would still want to try and help them the best mm-hmm. way that yeah. I could. Yeah. So yeah. Well, yeah what about I mean, these you know- suicidal clusters that we read about? Yeah, like is there some other factors that come into play, not necessarily because the person wants to die, but is there something influencing them to die Yes. or to want to commit suicide? Like in uh, Brigand or Bridgend Wales, there was this suicide cluster. I think it started in like 2007. All these teenagers were killing themselves.
2: They weren't just teenagers, One, though. Other. Some of them were like 40. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot of them were teenagers. So yeah, but it was yeah. all ages really. Yeah. Was there something about that area in particular that caused so many suicides mm-hmm. in that period of time?
2: And they were all by hanging too. Yeah. I think I think it was like all but one was a hanging. Like every, all of them hung themselves. Mhm. Which is I don't know, it just seemed very strange. And like a lot of the victims didn't didn't even know each other. Some mm-hmm. of them did. Yeah. But um yeah, very very strange. Like, well, what would cause you know this group of people who don't necessarily even know themselves? I mean, you know, you can talk about copycats to a certain extent, but it just mm-hmm. seems uh, it seems like kind of an extreme situation for people to just be like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that too. Yeah. It, uh, yeah.
1: Well, there is an act, the actual phenomenon of copycat suicides. I think I've read somewhere mm-hmm. like if a famous person or someone commit suicide and they get a lot of attention after the fact it might encourage other people who are on the brink to actually go ahead and commit suicide especially if they identify with the victim in some sort of way but um, one of the things about the brigand suicide there was the chatter going on about how the cell phone towers were a lot closer to people's homes than they usually are like uh, usually they're at least like eight 800 meters away from somebody's house, but in a lot of the cases, they're like two to three hundred meters away from the house. Like, could uh-huh. they be be uh, brain brain affected by the the waves coming off of the cell phone towers that could you know make you have all these suicidal thoughts and actually carry on with the act? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that can actually be proven, but that's one theory that somebody came up with.
2: Yeah, I think that's a distinct possibility. Mm-hmm. I do wonder about medications too. Like maybe there was a town doctor who was like giving out, you know, SSRIs like they were candy,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and just happened to, you know, kind of work badly with a whole bunch of the town residents in a, the same time period. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just speculation.
1: Yeah.
0: And one of our chatters uh, talked about the blue whale challenge that's been happening. Yeah. Um, In Russia. So basically, uh, Central Asian countries like Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. So these uh, children and teens are basically being encouraged to commit suicide through participation in what they're calling a ghoulish online game. And some of the hashtags include blue whale, sea of whales, I'm in the game, wake me at 420. And it's just really concerning. Speaking of teen suicide, one of our chatters asked about hormone imbalance. I think you know it's probably a pretty normal part of teenage years to question your life and your purpose. And um, when my children were in high school, there was suicides at least once a year, and it was very concerning for the teachers. And they would have these. Uh, meetings, you know, uh, with assemblies. Because uh, for one in particular, that I remember he was a very well-known football player, got a full scholarship to go to college. His life, you know, seemed like it was great. He left school and went home and hung himself with a garden house. And, you know, the, the concern amongst staff and parents was that there was no signs, like the woman in the video was saying, you know, that there's these signs, there was no signs that this child would do it. Well, two days later, another child did it. So is it again, this, these teens are, yes, the hormonal disruption, but also social media. And I don't know. It's concerning.
1: Yeah. And you get into now where teenagers not just teenagers though are live streaming their suicides on Facebook or whatever other live streaming site that there is which is really sad but it's kind of a sign of our times like uh, if social media is the only way that you feel like you have any kind of connection with somebody I don't know maybe in some of these cases like they said that a lot of them took a really long time, like hours, live streaming before they actually committed the act. And there were some people that were egging them on and others, you know, they, would, they didn't know where they were. Who could they call yeah. and try to, you know, stop them from doing it? But it's just really strange that it's come down to people broadcasting their suicides yeah. for everyone to see.
2: I wonder if there's some kind of real disconnect going on there, like maybe... They're, they're, like the craving for attention is so strong that they just, they, they you know, because they, all of a sudden they have all this attention and all these people are watching and, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to get famous to a certain degree, but they don't really connect with the idea that they won't be around any longer to kind of reap the benefits of that attention and the fame or anything. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of the same with the, the copycats, you know, you've got... You know somebody commits suicide and suddenly you know there's memorial websites up and there's people posting on their Facebook page and they're getting all of this attention and stuff and it's kind of like, well, I want that attention, mm-hmm. so a copycat you does that won't
1: be around to get the attention well, exactly. you're gone exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I wonder if it is just kind of this primitive like I want that without actually connecting to the fact that no this solution is you know this is final mm-hmm. you know you don't you don't stick around and 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 reap the rewards,
1: yeah.
0: Well, it's kind of that age, too, like acting without thinking about the consequences of your action, and maybe that's why this blue whale challenge is happening, because, you know, these children are looking for something in their life, and they find this online game, and apparently, just from reading the article, it's like there's all these challenges, like 40 or so challenges to you know challenge your fear stand on the side of a building but the ultimate challenge is to kill yourself
2: yeah they just keep on escalating like there's self-harm in it as well like carving things into your arm and stuff like that and taking a picture of it and
3: yeah,
2: yeah. really um, really disturbing stuff and they're told and the other thing too is that <clears throat> when I was first started reading about it I was like well you know maybe these kids getting involved don't know what the ultimate. And is, but apparently they tell you right from the beginning, you know, you have to do what we say, and if you don't, there will be consequences, and at the end you're going to die. And they're like, okay, sign me up. Sounds good.
1: Yeah, that's just sick. Yeah. But in the case of unrelenting physical pain, is yes. suicide a valid choice?
0: <clears throat> so we're shifting gears now. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Euthanasia. Yeah, I think so. Mercy killings,
2: yeah, yeah, I think um, I think I think, in that kind of situation it is it is warranted um, if, if a person is in an immense amount of pain, be it psychological or physical, and there doesn't really seem to be anything that's helping, then yeah, you know, at that point, I'm kind of like, well, you know if it, if this person has decided that they've had enough, then th- it's their right to do so mm hmm
1: I think that can come in two forms, like active and passive. Mm -hmm. Like you're actively going to kill yourself. Like there's some countries where it's okay, but nobody can help you. Mm -hmm. You have to do it yourself. But Mm -hmm. then there's also like passive suicide where you have the do not resuscitate orders or someone so old and infirm, you're not going to take any measures to try to save their life. Like say they're in a hospital bed and been in hospital bed for years. They're pretty much a vegetable and they catch pneumonia. You're not going to treat the pneumonia. So that would be like a passive suicide mm-hmm. or passive euthanasia. But uh, I don't know. Like for me personally, if if I was, I don't know. I've never been in severe debilitating pain, which there was no cure for it ever, so I can't really say what I would do in that situation, but mm. I kind of don't want to end the game before it's over.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. I it, It's hard to know what, what I would do in that kind of situation. Mm-hmm. But um, I I know what you mean. Like I kind of would feel the same way. It's like, well, what if I miss something?
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) What if a (laughs) cure is right around the corner? Come back and see it again. Yeah, Yeah. there's the whole like I don't know if everybody believes in reincarnation, but if I decide to check out for whatever reason, I'm still going to have to come back and do it all over again.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's a possibility.
1: Yeah. But we do have another clip. This is from a counselor who was actually suicidal at one point in his life. And he's talking about how he coped with that and what actually brought him out of it.
3: In your memoir, when going through hell, don't stop. You spoke of your battle with suicidal thoughts and feelings. How did you become suicidal? Well, I became suicidal because I was clinically depressed. Uh, And that's true for most people. You know, suicidal thinking, suicidal feelings do not come out of thin air. They come out of a response to a type of state called depression and despair. And specifically to pain. Suicidal thinking, suicidal feeling is about trying to get out of the pain. And there are three things about the pain of depression that make it particularly insidious. Mm -hmm. First of all, it is very, very powerful and intense. Now, it's hard to describe it because it's not like a physical pain like stubbing your toe or burning your hand. But here, here is how the, the novelist William Styron described it. He said, I would rather have my arm amputated without anesthesia than to be going through the kind of emotional pain I'm going through now. And this he told his daughter on the eve of his hospitalization. So it's this very hard to describe but overwhelming pain. The second thing is that it is unremitting. It, it doesn't seem to go away. And if you try to change your circumstances, it follows you. Uh, I remember one day in the summer of 1997, I was hiking up to uh, uh, Angel's Rest here in the Columbia Gorge. It was a beautiful sunny day. And even though I was surrounded by the forest and, and, and and the beautiful sunshine and the trees, all I could think about was, when I got to the top, do I want to jump? I mean, I could not enjoy what was around me because I was imprisoned by the darkness within my own mind. The third thing about this depression, this type of pain with depression is it feels like it will never end. It feels like you're stuck here forever. You're in this like eternal hell. You know, they talk about eternal damnation. You don't have to die to be in hell. You can be right here in the present tense. And so unlike a person who basically like is a prisoner of war and dreams of coming back to his family or someone who's going in for heart surgery and schedules the time to play golf because he knows he's going to get better and then he can play his golf when he's he's up to snuff, a person with depression doesn't see a future. Someone once said that depression is a failure of the imagination. So you're stuck in this hell that is going for eternity. Well, in that case, why wouldn't you want to have a way out? It would seem that would be an expression of self-love rather than self-destruction. When did you realize you were suicidal and did you make any plans? Well... You know, I was kind of struggling with my misery for a while, but then one day I, I, I uh, created a will, put my affairs in order, and <clears throat> made my brother the executor. That's how I knew I was uh, serious. So, what did I think about? It? You know, if you know someone who is suicidal, the first thing, one of the first things you say to them is, "Do you have a plan?" So, if someone had asked me that question, I would have said, "Well, well, yeah. One idea is maybe I'll shoot myself because it's, you know, one of the more efficient ways to do yourself in." But then I remember talking to a counselor in Florida during one of my previous episodes, and he said, you know, Doug, I wouldn't be so sure because I had a, uh, a client who shot himself right in the head, but it didn't kill him. It just made him a vegetable, and he was on life support the rest of his life. And that didn't seem like a really good option. So, you know, I couldn't really be sure that would, that would finish the job. Uh, then I thought about, well, maybe I should jump off a bridge or something. But then I realized, of course, as the time came closer, that I was afraid of heights, I also said to myself, what if once I get over the rail, I change my mind, and in fact, this is what happened to two survivors of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. One person said, as soon as I got over the rail, I realized that everything in my life that I thought was not fixable was in fact fixable. Fortunately, he survived and was able to rebuild his life. Um, The third option I had was to save up a lot of pills and take those, but then I remembered that only 3% of people who try overdosing themselves are successful. And besides, when it really came down to it, I really didn't want to die. I just wanted to get out of pain. And that's what most people who are suicidal struggle with. They're not really trying to destroy themselves. They're just looking for a way out of this unbearable pain. What thoughts and ideas did you have that prevented you from carrying out the urge? So I talked about these urges I had, these plans about guns and, and, you know, jumping off bridges and using pills. And these were things that obsessed me day in and day out. But I also had some other thoughts and feelings that would counter those. The first was a healthy fear of death. I mean, we have it hardwired into our being. It's called the survival instinct. And and I didn't really know what death held in store for me, even though I had some ideas. And so I think this, this healthy, instinctual fear of dying was one thing that kept me from acting out. The second thing was, uh, I and do believe in reincarnation. I'm not sure it exists, but I, I think it probably does. And uh, as a result, in that frame of mind, you know, If you kill yourself, you're just going to have to come back and start where you left off in the next lifetime. It's sort of like dropping out of a class. You take it incomplete, but at some point you have to make up the class in order to graduate. So I realized if I wanted to graduate from the school of life, there were no shortcuts. There were no easy escapes. And the third and probably the most important deterrent to me was the fact that I knew the effects on other people my suicide would cause because... I had been close to people, including my own psychotherapist who had taken her own life, and I saw that the people left behind have a tremendous amount of suffering they're dealing with, guilt, and could I have done more, and anger, and, and in some ways, people never get over it. So I thought to myself, you know, here I am going through this hell, and if I do something to harm myself, then I'm just going to have other people in my life who are close to me go through hell also, and why do I want to increase the suffering in the world when my suffering is plenty? So. It was those three things, uh, the fear of death, a belief that maybe if I did die, I'd have to come back and do it all over again, and the desire not to increase the suffering of the world by hurting the people I love. Those were three reasons that kind of kept me from the abyss, from basically taking that final act. What kinds of support did you get from other people? Well, in my book, Healing from Depression, I say the second pillar of healing is reach out for support. Unfortunately. I did have support from a lot of people, and from that I've come up with the saying, it takes a whole village to shepherd someone through a dark night of the soul. I just want to talk about two people right now who really helped me through this suicidal episode. One of them was Mary Morrissey, who is the head minister of the Living Enrichment Center. And when I came to her, she said, you know, I want you to think about this depression, not as an abyss, but a transition point. Because in Buddhism, we say that all states turn into their opposites. So... Pain turns to pleasure, pleasure turns to pain. Nothing uh, lasts forever, and you know, just because you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to pinch pitch your tent there. Uh, to paraphrase uh, Winston Churchill, she said, "When going through hell, don't stop," and that became the title of my memoir. A second person who was really tremendously beneficial to me was a woman named Judy. Uh, she was a social worker who was a friend of mine, but she also had been suicidal herself, had gone through some clinical depressions and really understood this from a soul level. And she gave me a very nice metaphor of a scales. And on one side is coping resources and the other side is pain. And she said, you know, you're not really uh, truly wanting to die. It's just that with the scales, the pain is weighing down, is heavier than the coping resources. So in a sense, there's a balancing act. You know, when you have coping resources, More than the pain, you feel better and you you feel like you continue. continue. But when the pain is greater than the coping resources, that's when you start to think you want to give up. So I always thought of these scales and said, I said to myself, how can I increase my coping resources or how can I decrease my pain? The second thing she wanted she said, I want to share with you is a parable that really helped me to understand. Uh, about the lack of permanence in, in, in all things in, in life, especially states of extreme despair. And here's the parable. According to an ancient tale, a Supi warrior, Sufi village was attacked and captured by a group of warriors. The king of the victorious tribe told the vanquished that unless they fulfilled his wish, the entire village would be put to death the following morning. The king's wish was to know the secret of what would make him happy when he was sad and sad when he was happy. The village constructed a large bonfire, and all night long their wise men and wise women strove to answer the riddle. What could make a person happy when they were sad, and sad when they were happy? Finally sunrise dawned, and the king entered the village. Approaching the wise ones, he asked, ''Have you fulfilled my request?'' They replied, ''Yes.'' The king was presented with a pouch, and in that pouch was a gold ring. The king was perplexed. ''I have no need of gold,'' he said. How can this ring make me happy when I am sad and sad when I am happy? And then he looked at the inscription in the ring and it said, This too shall pass. So you see, Judy told me, the only thing constant in the universe is change. Nothing lasts forever. I know you feel you're hopeless, but that is a trick that your brain is playing on you. You know, you're not omniscient, you're not God, and you don't really know what's going to bring, what the next day is going to bring, and neither do I. So instead of worrying about tomorrow or worrying, am I ever going to get better? just focus on getting through one day at a time, day by day, breath by breath. Fortunately, I had already developed what I called my daily survival plan to, from living in hell for living in hell, and as a result of that, I was able to keep my focus on the present moment and kind of just not get too worried about if I was ever going to get out of this. And sure enough, one day, like in the film Groundhog Day, I woke up and due to uh, a miracle that happened to me, which I describe in one of my other videos, uh, I was able to come out of this deep depression and live again and looking back, I am so glad i didn 't take my own life because that was when I was forty seven years old and now i 'm sixty four in the last seventeen years, so many good things have happened to me i 've been able to write three books on depression i 've been able to run support groups which have helped hundreds of people i 've been able to parent two wonderful godchildren. Everything that has given me meaning and purpose has occurred in the last 17 years since my last depressive episode. So if I had taken my life, it would have been a real tragedy because the real purpose of life would never have been revealed to me and I never would have had the ability to live it out. So based on my experience, I have something to say to anybody watching this video who may be depressed, who may feel hopeless, who may feel despairing, and may feel that they want to do something to harm themselves. And this is my message directly to you. If you feel like you are going through hell, don't stop. If you, are, you feel like you are at the edge of an abyss, don't jump. Because as long as you are breathing, there is hope. As long as day follows night, there is hope. Just keep setting the intention to heal, reach out for support, and you will find help. Because when you really want to survive, you will draw to yourself the people and the circumstances that will help you in your moment of need. Your prayers will be answered, I promise it. And as they say in AA, don't give up five minutes before the miracle. This I can tell you from my own personal experience. It is true. It is correct. Don't give up five minutes before the miracle. Help is on the way. Thank you.
1: Well, that was very inspiring. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. yeah definitely.
1: It's been said that the best way to get out of your own bubble is to help somebody else. So maybe if you're feeling very mired in misery, you have a lot of despair, hopelessness, maybe the best way to get over yourself is to help somebody else do something, Mm -hmm. no matter what it may be. And like you said in that clip, you, you might draw the very thing that you need out of interacting with other people.
2: Yeah, it well, was just the fact that he was able to write books about depression, mm-hmm. help other people. I mean, sounds like that was certainly part of his recovery.
0: Yeah. And that he did ultimately have a, a purpose that he just had to go through that dark night of soul and
5: mm-hmm.
0: bear the, the pain and the agony and, you know, push up against those. You know, I thought it was interesting how he's talked about how he had the fear of heights. Mm-hmm. You know, when he thought about jumping off the bridge. Mm. It's like when you get so emotionally overloaded and then that little survival, self-preservation instinct (laughs) kicks in. Yeah. And they have built on the Golden Gate Bridge a big wire fence so people don't jump off and Mm -hmm. people
1: still Mm -hmm. do it repeatedly. So.
2: Where there's a will, there's a way
1: yeah i'm not going to kid myself and say that all suicides can be prevented if someone's determined enough they're gonna do it mm-hmm. yeah um but it would just be nice if we lived in a world where people never got to that point where everybody could be happy and hold hands and sing kumbaya <laughs> <laughs> that'll never happen <laughs> <laughs>
0: Or at least just take it 15 minutes at a time, right? Mm-hmm. That's another kind of recovery saying is it's not one day at a time. It's 15 minutes at a time.
1: Mm-hmm. And whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> like if you go through some dark periods, a dark night of the soul, and you live through it, I mean, that's a learning experience. You learn something viscerally deep mm-hmm. down within yourself that you could use to help somebody else who might be going through the same thing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Have we reached any conclusions
0: again on the yeah. health and wellness show?
1: Just a discussion. <laughs> no real conclusions.
2: Yeah. I mean it's it, it is such a murky issue. It is difficult to kind of come to any solid conclusions about it. Suicide is bad. Suicide is freedom of choice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean every situation just seems so different. That you can't really have, you know, a, a blanket statement for the whole thing. At least I can't, personally. Mm-hmm. I know some people do, the pro-choicers and uh, pro-lifers seem to have it, you know, pretty firmly established in their mind. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think every situation is very different. I think um, one of the most tragic things are, you know, children and um teen suicides and things like that because you know i think about you know my state of mind back in those days and it's like well you know life hadn't even really begun yet you know you're still kind of figuring things out to end things at that point just seems completely pointless you know all the things that you're surrounded by there are probably leading to these um thoughts of suicide probably won't be there in a year mm-hmm. you know and that sounds like a long time but like honestly you know high school is not that long, you know, and once you're out of it, a lot of those people you will never see again. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to trivialize it because I know obviously there are bigger problems um, in some teens' lives. But um, nonetheless, I, I do think that, uh, that you know, for an adult to commit suicide is tragic enough, But uh, but for the young to do it, it's really, really tragic.
0: Well, and it's also hard not to get caught up in that whole idea of like, what do they have to look forward to, you know, and Mm. to be able to, as one of our chatters said, reach out to somebody to make a difference. I mean, I've been around a lot of teenagers and, you know, you have to tread very lightly Mm. because especially if you read the signs of the times every day, it's hard to, (laughs) you know, think, oh, you're going to go to college and get a job and get married and, you know, so it's really chewing your words before you spit them out so uh-huh. to speak mm-hmm. and and just you know trying to be a supportive person and listening i think with teenagers they just want to be heard
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know they just want to have a a forum in a sense to speak to and share those deep dark fears and secrets and just be listened to not even be given solutions mm-hmm. necessarily
1: because I think a lot of people think that they're the only ones who feel that way. And mm. they'd be surprised to know that there are tons of other people out there who are either in the same position they're in or have been there. Mm-hmm. And they came out on the other side. But the only, the only conclusion that I could draw, I can't say that it's bad or good or if it's justified or not, depending on the circumstances, it's just sad. Mm-hmm. It's just, a sad state of affairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, suicide is sad. That's all I got to say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's the only conclusion we've come to.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, to continue on our topic, we do have a pet health segment. And now I have forgotten the name of it.
1: It's on euthanasia.
0: In animals. Yeah. So why don't we go to that and see what Zoya has to share with us today.
5: Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week, I would like to share with you something that isn't easy at all. The end of yesterday's shift wasn't easy at all. Within half an hour, we had three emergency patients, two of them died, and the third one was in a critical condition when I left home. Hopefully he's still alive. Each of three, uh, of the three cases had different circumstances. One was a dog that got attacked by another dog. Another was a dog that has been suffering from undiagnosed pulmonary edema for a week already and another one was ran over by a car. But in all the cases we had owners totally devastated and crying in the lobby. Since we had to act quickly we divided the job between us and each of the doctors who were on a shift took care of the animals and the owners of this animal. Now some time ago, I had to do a fluid therapy to a cat that was diagnosed with panleukopenia. This is a deadly infectious feline disease. This cat was in a serious condition, and the owner tried to get used to this idea that she may lose her cat very soon. She said to me, I wouldn't be able to do the job you do. I'm too emotional. You are veterinarians have to be unemotional and heartless to do the job you do like euthanasia. Well, at the time I just comforted the woman and told her that we are not unemotional, we just understand that it is best to end the animal's life if they are suffering, that it is the most compassionate thing to do. But I would be lying if I said that I don't question it and don't wonder from time to time why indeed I am able to do it. Perhaps that's why, according to the statistics in the West, veterinarians are on the first place in suicides. Uh, There is also this term, compassion fatigue. It simply can be extremely draining to care about each animal on the levels owners would do it. There is also the question of should we care on the same level? Does it mean that we would do less to save the animal? So, It is a very controversial topic that raises a lot of questions because I was also witness to cases where owners weren't ready to let go of the pets and invested a lot of money in prolonging their lives which unfortunately meant prolonging their suffering but the owners were not ready to accept it and this is actually much harder to witness than doing a justified euthanasia. Interestingly enough, suicide statistics uh, are less relevant for Russia. Here the approach is indeed perhaps less emotional, but more professional. We are supposed to be professionals and that's why we need to do our job and do our best to save the animal's life but we do still care and love our patients simply because we love animals. And coming back to this dreadful end of yesterday's shift. uh, There is well, we had to act quickly. On one hand, try and save animals' lives, if it was still possible. On the other, talk and console the owners and also do the unavoidable and necessary job of signing them on all kinds of administrative papers and advising them about the bill. I think that in such situations, the hardest thing is realizing that we, the veterinarians, don't have room left for emotions and empathy on the level that this cat owner was talking about. If we want to remain sane, that is. Perhaps if the owners are in pain and are grieving, they don't need a doctor that breaks down along with them. They need a professional. But it doesn't mean that we are unemotional. That's why most surgeons who have pets can't operate on their own. And we also break down and are devastated when we lose our loved pets, if we, even if we may know that it is unavoidable and may exact, know exactly what should be done. Bottom line is there are situations where it isn't possible to save the animal. Or the situation is so serious that prolonging their life would mean prolonging their suffering. In such a situation it is okay to choose euthanasia and it doesn't mean that you are unemotional or uncaring or you are irresponsible in any way. In fact, the opposite is true. As the guardians... We often have the responsibility to allow the animal to pass to the other side with dignity. And this is beautiful and kind, even if extremely hard. Well, this is it for this week. Have a good one and goodbye.
0: Well, thank you, Zoya, for that. It's very helpful.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You hardly hear it from the veterinarian's point it's of same view. Point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are cases where euthanasia is justified, not just in pets, but I guess I could say in humans as well.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Especially when there's a prolonged suffering happening. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's like uh, some funerals I've been to. The person was very sick and they were obviously suffering. It wasn't such a sad occasion as it could have been like if they had died in the prime of life and at the peak of health. You're just happy that their suffering is over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sounds cliche to say, oh, they're in a better place. I mean, we can't really say that for sure. Maybe they are in a better place. I would like to hope that they're in a better place. Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah.
0: So, again, coming back to our topic, where we didn't really draw much conclusions, but just had a discussion about it. Yeah. And we thank all our chatters for joining us. And no callers this week, but maybe next week.
1: And yeah, we don't know what we're going to talk about talk about a happy subject next (laughs) week. Yes, we're hoping
0: to have something besides corporal punishment and suicide and (laughs) (laughs) something a little bit lighter.
2: Let's talk about unicorns. Yes. Yes.
0: So thank you all for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next week. Please join us on Sunday at the SOT Radio Network. And for all you out there, have a great weekend.
2: Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye.